Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. He took the bomb. <laughs> From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Today, the Sound Opinions World Tour heads to the other side of the globe to make its next stop. We'll take a virtual trip to New Zealand and explore the best of Kiwi pop from Flying Nun Records till today. Plus, we'll review the new album from New Zealand's biggest star, Lord. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, we're excited. We're going to the other side of the world. We're going to spend this show in New Zealand talking about uh, that country's rich legacy of music. But to start off, we have to deal with a record that's making a lot of news, probably the biggest artist ever to come out of New Zealand, and she is now only 20, Ella Maria Lonnie Yelich O'Connor, better known as Lord, born in New Zealand, uh, made her big splash in 2013. First, with a self-released single. That single is Royals. And we'll never be royals. It's a one in our blood. That kind of love's just ain't for us. We crave a different kind of buzz. Made with her collaborator, Joel Little, it really set the world on fire. Becomes a worldwide hit. By the time the album Pure Heroine comes out at the end of 2013, uh, she spent weeks on top of the charts in the U.S. and in many other countries. She is uh, taking home an armful of Grammys, a Brit Award, you name it. People are saying that at at the age of 15 and then 16, you know, she's invented a new sound. It's part uh, indie underground, part dream pop. Uh, She's doing fascinating things with very minimal ingredients, mainly uh, a striking voice and an interesting personality, and then disappears. Four years, uh, Lord has been off the scene, uh, out of the spotlight. She said that that first album, Pure Heroine, quote, was my way of enshrining teenage glory. The new one, she says, is about what comes next. Joel Little is on board for some of it, but she has worked with a new producer, Jack Antonoff. Uh, who is this guy? Remember Fun? Sure. Small F-U-N period. Uh, and Taylor Swift. He played a big role on Taylor Swift's 1989. The album is called Melodrama. We're going to play a song from it, Perfect Places, and then come back and give our reviews. Lord on Sound Opinions. Every night I live and die. Feel the party to my bones Watch the wasters blow the speakers Spill my guts beneath the outdoor light It's just another graceless night I hate the headlines and the weather I'm 19 and I'm on fire But when we're dancing I'm alright It's just Another graceless night Are you lost enough? Have another 
album melodrama jim it's interesting that uh, this is an album where the word i is used more than we we the community us our my generation that was a big theme in that first lord album i think that's why that record had such a huge appeal because she was giving voice to this generation that was emerging. There was a lot of optimism there. Okay, we see the world for what it is. We're skeptical about it. But we're going to make it a better place. Our generation is going to yeah, make some uh, Royals changes. really is is a millennial version of Smells Like Teen Spirit. It really Here we is. are now, entertain us. It yeah. really is. And, and, and now uh, we are retreating back to I. Less we, more I. Increasing sense of isolation. Now, some may sort of view this like the pop star is, you know, too big for her britches. You know, she's outgrown her generation. You know, I'm not reading it so much as that, as her realization that, as in that song, Perfect Places, those perfect places that we thought we were uh, starting to create for ourselves, you know, it's sort of an illusion, you know? And this album is set up as a night of partying and then the morning after and the realization that, hey, maybe things aren't so great anymore. Uh, there's also a breakup that is, is a subtext of this uh, record, uh, a real-life breakup. But I think the themes here are still universal. And what I am most impressed by is her work with uh, Jack Antonoff. While she's making a, what is essentially a singer-songwriter album, uh, much more traditional in feel in some ways than the debut was, which was a very hip-hop-influenced album. This is more piano-based singer-songwriter songs. There's still these kind of off-color touches that make this kind of a, a, a stranger kind of pop record. It is not a conventional, mainstream kind of pop record that you would expect from an artist that is selling millions of records. I am a mother's child, I love you too. It, it is kind of an art pop record. And from that standpoint, she's still taking chances both in, in terms of the melodies and the arrangements. And in the lyrics, sing something that's, you know, a little bit harder to swallow. It's like, okay, uh, maybe we're not all we're cracked up to be. And where are those perfect places that we thought we were going to have? So we were seeing a sort of a loss of innocence record here, emerging into a young adulthood, and it's a tough place to be. Uh, it's a buy-it record for me. Uh, you know, I like the record a lot, Greg. I don't uh, love Antonoff's production. I wish he had continued to work with Joel Little. You know, we're seeing, uh, uh, you know, incredible things done in a minimalist pop setting these days by by a group like Sneaks. I, I, I could listen to productions like Royals for the rest of my life. I think there's a little fussiness and a little bit too much cleanliness in the Antonoff uh, production. He knows this is Grammy-bound, this record, okay? That having been said, the songs are extraordinary. Lord's Way of uh, embracing a melody, taking it somewhere unexpected, um, doing interesting things with 
the arrangements, you know, the way the piano will suddenly kick in and lift the song to another level, or most of all, her voice. That song, The Louvre. The delivery, this is the best throwaway, like, uh, pop delivery I've heard. I don't know. I'd have to go back to, like, something like These Boots Are Made For Walking. I think progresses are calling you come through. Blow all my friendships to sit in hell with you. But we're the greatest. They'll hang us in the Louvre. Down the back, but who cares? Still the Louvre. Down the back, but who cares? Still the Louvre. The way she adds the still the Louvre. It's priceless. You know, uh, sophistication in terms of delivery. I really wish, I'd like to hear the demos for this record, but don't get me wrong. The songs make it a buy it still. A double buy it for Lord's melodrama. So yes, Lord is the biggest pop star to come out of New Zealand, but the, the country has produced a lot of great music besides that. On our musical tour of New Zealand, we're going to dig deep into what is known as the Dunedin sound. This was that uh, blend of indie pop, indie rock uh, that came out of New Zealand in the late 70s, on through the 80s, into the 90s. Many great bands not only establishing a culture of music in this island nation, but having a huge influence on bands outside of New Zealand. Uh, for the first time. Hey, you uh, know, you, you hear it in Pavement, Greg. You hear it in, in a lot of uh, power pop from the U.S. and from Europe. I always heard it in the Elephant Six bands uh, out, right. of, out of Ruston, Louisiana. Uh, anybody that loves idiosyncratic, vaguely psychedelic pop has at some point turned toward the Dunedin sound. Uh, to get uh, our tour, our world tour, occasional series we do here on Sound Opinions of New Zealand, we have turned to Nick Bollinger. He's a, a critic, a musician, a producer from New Zealand. Uh, his radio show in radio on Radio New Zealand is called The Sampler. He's written several books about the sounds of New Zealand, including a, a recent memoir, Gonville, about that period in the 70s. Nick, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hi. So, Nick, the bands we're going to talk to you about, uh, the Chills, the Verlaines, uh, you know, they all had a couple things in common. They recorded for a label called Flying Nun, it's become legendary in the indie rock world. Uh, and many of them had roots in the city of Dunedin. Let's start uh, by you telling us what Dunedin is like. Dunedin's a university town. Um, it's the main city of the Otago region, which is the southernmost part of New Zealand. So it's quite isolated. It's a hilly place. It's very cold in winter, so a lot of time to spend sitting around keeping warm and, and uh, in front of the stereo. It's got a beautiful harbour, but it's a university town, and a lot of young people go there from all over the country to go to university. Nick, how would you describe the Dunedin sound? Well, initially, I think it was characterised by a lot of young musicians who were starting out with pretty rough equipment, primitive skills, and so the sound was a sort of an inevitable consequence of that. You got a lot of very trebly, hard, strummed guitars and clattery drums and the occasional fafisa organ. One thing about these young musicians was I think they had particularly great record collections and that was a function of growing up or living in Dunedin. This is a new theory that I've only just hatched, but having this constantly shifting student population 
there was a thriving used record trade there. Mm. And I think a lot of the, this music just changed hands. And then there were a few old veterans who would turn some of the younger musicians on to things that they ought to hear, you know. So it, there was a real music-loving community who weren't just listening to what was on the radio but were digging a bit deeper. And that implanted itself in the minds of some of these young musicians. So even though they were just starting out, they had quite clear ideas about what their aesthetic was, what they wanted to play, and what they wanted it to sound like. Were there any uh, common touchstones in terms of the kind of bands and genres that influenced uh, the Dunedin sound? They were going right back into the 60s and listening to quite obscure American garage bands and the Velvet Underground who had barely rippled the surface in New Zealand up to that point. There's a prominent drone that runs through a lot of that music. We'll continue our look at the Dunedin sound and the music of New Zealand in a minute. And later on, I'll pick a track I can't live without. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are continuing our Sound Opinions World Tour stop on the other side of the world in New Zealand. We are joined by writer, critic, New Zealand music historian, radio personality, Nick Bollinger. And we're focusing right now on the Dunedin Sound. Uh, This has taken on a, a legendary status in the underground rock world. We're talking about bands like The Chills, The Verlaines, The Bats, and Look Blue, Go Purple. The list goes on and on. Now, all the major bands are associated with a small New Zealand indie label called Flying Nun Records. Now, Flying Nun was founded in 81, uh, Nick, if I recall, by a record store owner named Roger Shepard, right? Yeah. He was in Christchurch, which is about 200 miles from Dunedin, but a lot of the... Wow. That's not next door. (laughs) It's not next door, no, but it's... You know, those bands started traveling. They, they would certainly travel up to Christchurch. Some of those musicians actually, they'd be living in Christchurch and, but playing in a Dunedin band. So there was a lot of movement back and forth. Roger would sometimes go down to Dunedin for weekends to hear bands down there. And I think he was just amazed that all this music he was hearing, that no one was recording it. What had happened in the previous decade in New Zealand was a lot of original music went unrecorded. Hmm. I remember going to see bands in the 70s that had quite well-developed original repertoires and they were playing mostly on the sort of campus circuit, touring the country, attracting quite big audiences, 
and they never made a record. <laughs> and that's odd because in Australia there were bands like the Saints and the Celibate Rifles that were recording pretty much sure. uh, as contemporaries of the Sex Pistols or the Ramones. Yep. I suppose the nearest equivalent to that here, and this is a, also a sort of key part of the Dunedin story, is a band called Toy Love, which was led by a guy called Chris Knox. And in fact, they grew out of a Dunedin band called The Enemy, mm. who formed, I think, about in the, seven, the late 77, totally inspired by the punk revolution that they'd been reading about in their sea-freighted copies of NME, which took, you know, three months to get to New Zealand. <laughs> Inspired probably more by what he'd read than what he'd actually heard, uh, Chris Knox, who would already have been in his mid-twenties, so almost too old to be a punk, he formed this band called The Enemy, which quickly evolved into Toy Love, which was a much more, a very original band. I mean, they did extraordinary things, great original songs. But also really funny things like they, I remember them playing a medley of Positively Fourth Street and Yummy, 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 I've Got Love in My Tummy. (laughs) I like that, yeah. And he was an incredibly charismatic, quite challenging figure, you know. I think he'd read about Iggy Pop's exploits and sometimes to get a reaction out of an audience, he would do things like hit himself with bottles and bleed over the front rows and things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They actually did make a record. They made an album which didn't quite do them justice. Unfortunately, did what happened to a lot of New Zealand bands. They went to Australia and basically it defeated them. You know, the the (laughs) continent was too large. They got exhausted from traveling from gig to gig. But when Chris Knox came back, this next wave of Dunedin bands who were largely inspired by The Enemy and Toy Love had begun already. Um, Groups like The Clean the Chills and the Verlaines. And really, Chris was there as a sort of mentor. And with the spoils of, of Toy Loves touring in Australia, he managed to buy himself a TIAC four-track recorder. Mm. And a lot of those early Flying Nun recordings were actually made by Chris on this tape recorder that he owned with, with a few borrowed microphones.
were there key bands for you in that first uh, wave of, of New Zealand bands that sort of really set the template for what came after? I think the clean, in a way, set the stage for all the bands that followed. I mean, the clean are very minimal songwriters. You know, they always keep their lyrics very succinct. It's almost just a few phrases, mm-hmm. unlike someone like Graham Downs or... or um, Matthew Bannister of Sneaky Feelings. And they put out an EP in 1981 called Boodle, 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 which was Flying Nun's first big success. Yeah, in in a lot of ways they made it possible for the bands that followed. I mean, they're absolutely pivotal. record that defines the early days of Flying Nun and is really important for what it represented at the time is the album that's come to be known as the Dunedin Double, which was two LPs, four sides, one band to each side. So there was the Chills, the Villains, Sneaky Feelings, and a group who sort of faded a bit into history, but they're called the Stones, which was an audacious <laughs> name to yeah. give themselves at the time. Right. Yeah. They were, in a way, the most primitive of those groups. But that record really defines the early Flying Nun thing. In a way, its ambitions are greater than its technical expertise. I think that was one of the albums that was largely recorded on this four-track of Chris Knox's, and, and they had it set up in the corridors of student apartments and things like that. So that was a big part of the Dunedin sound too, was this sort of DIY, do-it-yourself, lo-fi, you know. And it wasn't that they were sort of fetishizing the lo-fi-ness of, of their recordings. It really was just necessity, you know. Um, some of those bands were quite sonically ambitious. I mean, a group like the Verlaines, their leader, Graham Downs, was doing a doctorate on the composer Mahler. Mm. And I think he imagined the Verlaines to be this quite symphonic band, but of course, you know, given the budgets and, and the sort of constraints, they came out sounding the way they did, which was part of their charm.
Nick, I had interviewed Graham Downs, and he talked about these 48-bar melody lines that he was working. And then you've got bands that, uh, you know, were much more, uh, let's say, not quite as ambitious in terms of the kind of melodies they were writing, but they were still great bands. And yet you just used that term, Dunedin sound. Uh, do you believe there was a Dunedin sound? That's a good question. I, I think there was a sound, really it was the sound of the, the limitations, the technical limitations. I mean, I think if you listen to the early clean records, the early chills, the early Verlaines, you know, there is almost a sense of place about it. It, it. You can tell that they're different bands, but there is some sonic thing that connects it. And it's, you know, some of it comes just down to the equipment they were using. But, you know, quickly, as their compositional styles diverged and they started to be able to realise their ideas a, a bit more fully, yeah, after a while it became silly to talk about it as a sound, but of course by that stage everyone was talking about it as a sound. I mean, nobody in Seattle in 1991 wanted to be called grunge either, you know, <laughs> but there were certain, <laughs> you know, touchstones that I think the Chills and the Verlaines, uh, the Clean, and even later on uh, Straight Jacket Fits, I, I think they all, you know, there was a, a, a fondness of psychedelic rock and a kind of ambition, yes. a little bit of a snarky attitude in the lyrics, or or very literate. These these guys were all very well read, you know. Absolutely, and I mean that was again a result of them being in a basically in an academic environment. You know, they were in a university town. Some of them were students, but certainly their audience was largely made up of students. Yeah, it, it was quite a sort of intellectual environment. Do you like? was a community. I think that that's one thing that you could certainly say about it. It was a community of musicians. And they, you know, they used to play on each other's records too. Graham Downs would do, you know, a string quartet arrangement for a Sneaky Feelings track or um, Martin Phillips would play keyboards on a clean song. You know, for me, Nick, the band that stands out among all the New Zealand groups is the Chills. Um, something about Martin Phillips' songwriting, uh, the emotion, the empathy for people, weird characters. It was very much like Lou Reed, but the sound, you know, it took off, f for me, uh, from what R.E.M. was doing. Uh, you know, the jangle, the chime, those incredible melodies, and, and I got bragging rights. When the Chills did their first American tour, if I recall, they were the first band from New Zealand and Flying Nun to really make it over here to the U.S. Um, they needed a Fender Twin Reverb. I had one in the basement, and they toured America with that amp. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, when That's, they first came over well, here. Well, there's a claim.
word you haven't mentioned yet in relation to the Dunedin sound, but I think it's key, is reverb. Right? Oh, Those yeah. bands were all just reverb crazy, you know? And and there's something, you know, when you're in a recording studio and the musician says, I want a little reverb on my vocals or my guitar, they, you know, the, the producer often says, I'll hose it down. <laughs> to me, there's something about reverb and wetness. Uh, one of my best friends in the world, uh, I lived with him for a long time in Minneapolis, went on to become a, uh, a professor uh, at university in, in New Zealand in Christchurch. And he said it was the wettest place he'd ever been in the whole world, that he would take his socks out of the dryer and they would instantly be damp again. Is there <laughs> is there some kind of theory here about wetness and New Zealand and reverb? Because you even hear the reverb all over Lord's music. It's, uh, this is a brilliant theory. I, there could be a thesis in this, <laughs> but it's fantastic. Maybe that's the sound. I mean, Dunedin is particularly wet. So maybe that reverb is just uh, the, the sort of oral embodiment of, of the atmosphere in Dunedin. <laughs> you might be right. I, I always thought it was just the fact that reverb can also... You know, hide a multitude of sins. I mean, oh, there, there is that, yeah. This is before the days of auto tune or anything that we're talking. So, some of the sort of more kind of dodgy intonation and things, I think, was swallowed up in some of that reverb. I think for most uh, non-super indie geeky people, the first time they hear New Zealand uh, on the airwaves in the United States is with split ends, right? Yeah. So, 70s, new wave era. But it sounds like these kids in Dunedin were not trying to be that ambitious. They were making music for themselves and their own community. Or, or were they? Did they hope to be the next split ends? I don't think they looked that far ahead. Split ends were a band that sort of stuck their head above the parapet. And essentially, to achieve what they wanted to, they had to leave New Zealand. And they did right. pretty quickly. Yeah, I think the Flying Nun bands, I wouldn't be surprised if you scratch the surface, you'd find that there were more ambitions than, you know, were apparent at the time. I mean, certainly the appearance was, this is a bunch of scruffy campus town layabouts making music for their mates. But I think it was always more than that. Once that first wave uh, came through, the Flying Nun label eventually moved out of Dunedin, right? And and there was, it seemed like there was another wave of bands, Straight Jacket Fits, Balter Space, bands of that ilk. Sure. Had the sound shifted at that point in your mind and, and, and sort of the uh, the aesthetic, or was it a continuation of what the bands like The Clean and The Chills had started? I think there was always a connection. Like the early version of Balter Space actually included Hamish Kilgar of The Clean, mm. but there were different ambitions there too. I mean, Balter Space was a much more sonic... Um, 
in a way, less about the songs and, and, and more about the whole sort of physical presence of the music. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's sort of proto-shoegaze in that way. In a, in a sense, yeah, yeah. They were the loudest band I've ever seen, I think. Maybe it was just that they were playing in such a small venue mm. <laughs> and had their amps up so high. Shepard was running Flying Nun from Christchurch and then reasonably quickly he moved it up to Auckland which I think was because that's the biggest city in New Zealand it's the only city that has what you might think of as a music industry and at that point Flying Nun started picking up bands from all over the country so it wasn't just Dunedin bands anymore or a lot of bands that had started in Dunedin actually moved to Auckland and based themselves there. Uh, mm. Straight Jacket Fitz was one of those. Headless Chickens, who came along in the late 80s, early 90s, and I think they were quite a different band for Flying Nun to sign. You could see why they were there, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways they had an underground aesthetic, but, you know, they used samples, they used dance beats. Now, these things were really not elements you'd heard in any of the Flying Nun Dunedin bands up no. to that point. And they actually ended up having some pop crossover success in New Zealand anyway. short break we'll continue our musical tour of New Zealand with our guide Nick Bollinger by looking at some of the native people's sounds and contemporary artists from New Zealand plus Greg will drop a quarter into the desert island jukebox Greg what do you got in store Jim I'm going to go to another island Jamaica for my desert island pick this week that's in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRigatis, and we've been in the midst of a musical trip to New Zealand with the help of our guest, writer Nick Bollinger. Greg, so far we have focused on the so-called Dunedin Sound, that influential guitar rock movement of the 80s and 90s. But there's a major part of New Zealand culture that we haven't talked about yet, and that is the Maori population, uh, the indigenous population of New Zealand and the music associated with that. Nick, what kind of a role have the indigenous peoples played in New Zealand pop music? Yeah, well, I mean, Maori, the indigenous people of New Zealand, they make up 15 to 20 percent of the population. And as with all Pacific Island communities, um, music is an intrinsic part of their culture, you know, probably more more so than with the uh, European New Zealanders. You know, music actually has a ritual use in the culture. So it's a breeding ground for musicians. And, I mean, there are Maori and Polynesian musicians right through New Zealand music. Uh, and even, you know, some of the Flying Nun bands, there are actually Maori musicians. Someone like Shane Carter of mm. Straight Jacket Fits. His father was Maori. He he's identifies as Maori as well. Maori musicians, there was this phenomenon, I think, in the late 60s and early 70s, which I noticed. I thought of it as that the Maori Hendrixes seemed to be a lot of bands that had a Maori guitarist who could play a pretty close approximation of, of Jimi Hendrix. And some of them were quite creative in their own right. Uh, there was a guy called Billy Tikahika, Billy TK, who played guitar with a band called The Human Instinct. And... They they actually made a few albums, which are sort of, I think of as kind of New Zealand classics. phenomenon. The, the, Hendrix really was like a role model for, for particularly Maori guitarists. Then by the end of that decade, Bob Marley had visited New Zealand, reggae had infiltrated, and I think Maori and Pacific Island musicians in New Zealand identified with that. You know, they felt, this is island music, we live on a Pacific Island. Mm. They liked the rhythms, I think. It came very naturally to them. Maybe they heard some echo of it or echo of their own indigenous music in it. But it really embedded itself here. And from the late 70s on, there's a lot of reggae in New Zealand. You can certainly hear it as a version of reggae, but it it wouldn't sound like Bob Marley clones. New Zealand has claimed it. They've made it their own. Yeah, I think so. Particularly, there was a band called Herbs who were around in the early 80s who made a few albums and they combined reggae rhythms with a lot of Pacific Island rhythms and some Pacific Island language and yeah that's a very fresh interpretation of that music I think You know there's different ways different days Music like the moon passing through our face Time will come for Change. Brand new sun will shine its rays. World will turn and begin to 
by the late 80s, I suppose that something similar had happened with hip-hop too. Um, again, Maori and New Zealand were the early adopters of hip-hop. I think the first New Zealand hip-hop record was made by an outfit from Wellington called the Upper Hut Posse, Upper Hut being a suburb of, of Wellington. They're still going in some form, and they often rap in Te Reo, the Maori language. And there was a Samoan rapper from Christchurch called Scribe who had a huge hit in New Zealand and Australia uh, a few years ago. Uh, how many dudes you know roll like this? How many dudes you know flow like this? Not many, if any, not many, if any. How many dudes you know got the skills to go and rock a show like this? Uh-uh, uh-uh, I don't know anybody. Check, check to the mic, check a one-two from a crew coming through. Are you hype yet? Nick, who are some contemporary New Zealand artists you're excited about? Give us one. Well, I think everyone should hear Aldous Harding. Again, she's from the South Island. Uh, I think she grew up in Dunedin, in fact. You know, on first hearing, you, you think, oh, man, this is just another singer-songwriter. And then you realise she's actually got all these different voices and these different characters that she's inhabiting. And then you see her live, and it's actually very theatrical. And she's not quite like anybody else. I hope one dream will get that way. Just made her second album, produced by John Parrish. Who, yeah, who's best known for P.J. Harvey. I think not for nothing is Parrish working with her. She does have that kind of intensity. Yeah, yeah. She's a very intense performer. I, I certainly recommend anyone uh, listen to the album, but certainly see her live as well if you get a chance. So who else are you excited about making news out of New Zealand today? There's a young power pop band. I suppose that's the best way to describe them. Again, from Dunedin. Um, they're called Kane Strang. That's also the name of their singer and frontman. Um, they've got a new album coming up soon called uh, Two Hearts and No Brain, <laughs> I believe it's called. <laughs> and, but they've just got very charming, quite witty, quite downbeat pop songs. Just a, a lovely band. And, you know, I, I think people should listen out for them.
I also really like a guy who records as Electric Wire Hustle. It's kind of electro soul, I suppose. He's actually one of the sons of Billy Takahika, who was the Maori Hendrix yeah. from the Human Instinct. His name's Mara, Mara Takahika. But he's a beautiful singer. In a way, it's it's contemporary soul music, I, I think. All around this town, people stop and stare. I can feel the eyes upon me. See it in the face, there's nobody there. I felt that look before, they don't want me. one more uh, artist we should be looking out for, Nick? I think people should listen to Lord Echo. Lord Echo is the project of a guy called uh, Mike Fabulous. He also plays in a reggae band called The Black Seeds, which I think was his sort of day job for a long time. But Lord Echo is a side project which is much more eclectic. It's an exotic blend of there's some reggae in there, but there's also a lot of funk and African music, and I hear some Pacific Island styles in there as well. We have been talking to Nick Bollinger, got up at the crack of dawn in Wellington to talk with us about New Zealand. It's been tremendous fun. Thank you, Nick Bollinger, for coming on Sound Opinions. Hey, thanks so much. That wraps up the New Zealand edition of the Sound Opinions World Tour. But we want to hear from you. What's your favorite New Zealand artist? Leave us a message for the air on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. Greg, it is time for you to take a trip to another island, the desert island, and to pop quarter in the jukebox. Play a track you can't live without. What do you got? Well, Jim, it's summertime, and uh, lo and behold, in the mail arrives a triple CD set of singles, rarities, and the original album by the Congos, the Heart of the Congos, that was released in 1977, the 40th anniversary of this record. It is a perfect summer record in many ways, uh, and I think one of the greatest reggae albums ever made. Now, what's really odd about the story of the Congos, Heart of the Congos record, is that it never came out officially. It's been, it was released in many kind of uh, smaller bootleg-type incarnations. Uh, don't touch any of those until you get to the official release that came out 20 years after it was originally recorded by one Lee Scratch Perry at his infamous Black Ark Studios yeah. in Kingston. The Congos were, I think, as good as any vocal group out of Jamaica at the time. They had three vocalists in the band. Cedric Mighton is the guy who really sets them apart, those high falsetto vocals. The tenors, Roydell Johnson, and the wild card that was brought in for these specific sessions was one Wadi Burnett, who had sort of a uh, a, a deeper voice. Now, Perry's praised for his production on this record because of its unusual restraint. 
Perry was the kind of guy who would go nuts in the studio with the uh, the dub effects. Yeah, he's the king of triple-layered reverb. And he would create all sorts of psychedelic uh, mind-play kind of scenarios in the studio. But for this one, he realized, okay, these singers are amazing. I'm going to focus on them. I'm going to build a production around them. But there were little touches that he introduced on this record that really set it apart. What he was aiming for was a sound that was kind of more of a rural counterpart to the higher production values that were seeping into the other Kingston studios at the time versus the 16-track studios that were producing Bob Marley and Peter Tosh records. Perry was going for that four-track lo-fi kind of aesthetic, and you can really hear it here with the Congos. Now, the, the one thing I love about the song I'm going to play, and there are many things I love about it, uh, Children Crying, is that the new singer, Wadi, is bellowing into the, this cardboard center of a roll of tin foil. So he's creating the sound that sounds like a cow mooing. You know, mm. you talk about a pastoral sound. You know, he's going out in the field. People actually thought that Lee Perry had gone out and recorded cows going, no. But in addition to this plaintive song, this beautiful lead vocal by the lead singer, Cedric Mighton, pleading for another Moses to lead the nation and, and feed the hungry, uh, you've got these sound effects, this psychedelic scenario being created by Lee Scratch Perry. A lot of people consider this Lee Scratch Perry's masterpiece. A lot of people consider this the Congo's masterpiece. A lot of people I know consider this one of the greatest reggae albums ever made. The fact that it took 20 years to get this out is ridiculous. Now on its 40th anniversary, if you've never heard of this group, never heard of this record, it's a perfect opportunity to get it. Here's the Congos with children crying on Sound Equipment. The children crying in the wilderness That's right Jojo The children crying in the wilderness Send us That's the Congos with Children Crying, Lee Scratch Perry on production. Part of the Congos is the name of the album on Sound Opinions. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, 1977, the year that punk broke part one. Sound Opinions has been produced by Brendan Banizak, Evan Chung, 
Alex Claiborne, Iana Contreras, and our new intern, Isabella Martin. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, guys. It's Moose from Chicago. I am loving your road trip episode and especially loving it while driving. I do have one great suggestion for you to look into. I'm a huge fan of Everything But The Girl, and they did an entire album of road trip songs from the point of view of a Brit coming to America and traveling across the U.S., singing about such things as the Twin Cities, Sinatra in New York, and, of course, their single, Driving, which was one of their only hits they ever had. recommend checking out this beautiful pop jazz nugget from the early 90s. It's one of their finest yet most overlooked recordings. Have a great day. Hey, I just listened to Summer Road Trip and you asked about our favorite songs about places. I'm from Yulkenburg County. That song is Paradise by John Prine. Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County down, down by, by the Green River where paradise lay? Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train is hauled it away. My daddy was a coal miner right there in Muhlenberg County. My name is Myra. I'm from Central City, Kentucky, in Muhlenberg County. Thanks. Love your show. Hi, this is Mark from Connecticut. Hey, I'm just catching up on uh, the road trips episode. I know I'm a little late calling in. Had two other ideas. Uh, John Hyatt's Memphis in the meantime from Bring the Family. And then uh, NYC by Interpol, which uh, I think really evokes kind of lonely times um, at night in New York City, even though there's lots of people around. Thanks very much. Charlie from Minneapolis. Um, really enjoyed the uh, best album so far of 2017. I wanted to throw in a consideration as well. Timber Tambor's new record, Sincerely Future Pollution, sort of like a Canadian Nick Cave writing music for a John Hughes movie. I'll go away. I'll go way back to you. I'll go way back to you. 
good work. I uh, love the podcast. Have a good one. Hi, guys. Dave from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Favorite release of 2017 so far? Uh, that would be Matthew Ryan, Hustle Up Starling. Rock and roll. not the greatest voice but um, a whole lot of personality it's really awesome good anthemic rock and roll that's one of my picks for 2017 no more messages to share your opinions on sound opinions call 888-859-1800 we'll be back next week on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX